can take out your scripture and turn to Genesis chapter 12 as we continue in our reading through and looking at Genesis. So glad Bernie Woody is here with us today. It's good to have you back worshiping with us. I know I saw you last week, but I'm, I'm glad you're here with us again after your knee surgery. I was thinking of you as I was thinking about our introduction today because there was an announcement that was made in particle physics, made on July 4th, 2012, that was so big that a thousand scientists stood in line all night long to get into the room where the announcement was to be made. The head of the $10 billion Large Hadron Collider straddling France and Switzerland was about to give what many anticipated would be a groundbreaking announcement. A pronouncement of a discovery of what was believed to be the Higgs boson particle. The subatomic particle has been theorized for over 50 years but has never been seen, never been measured, never proven. But scientists believe that it was so fundamental in the shaping of the universe that scientists nicknamed it the God particle. An article in the New York Times about the Higgs boson was announced, announcement had this to say, confirmation of the Higgs boson or something very much like it would constitute a rendezvous with destiny for a generation of physicists who believed in the boson for half a century without ever seeing it. So for over 50 years, scientists believed in something that previously had been unproven. They pursued it even though they had no tangible, provable evidence that it was there. They trusted in something they had not seen. That's what our text is all about today. We're going to read about a man who leaves everything because of a promise. We're going to read about a man who trusts even though he doesn't see. We're going to read about a man who believed God's promises for over 100 years and at the end of his life, did not even see that some of those promises come true. Yet, he's a man of great faith. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took, with his, took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot, 
and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward Negev. The great expositor James Montgomery Boyce takes four sermons to cover this territory. That should give you some idea, an inkling of the theological depth and breadth and importance of these verses. It's been called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Martin Luther wrote that these verses, quote, should be written in gold letters and should be extolled in all languages to all people. Boyce, in his writing of of its significance, says, no one can understand the Old Testament without understanding Abram. For in many ways, the history of redemption begins with his calling. And God's call, as it always is, is built on faith. God's call is built on faith. Over and over again in Scripture, we're pointed back to Abram, to Abraham, aren't we? And what is it said over and over in Scripture about Abraham? He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So let's take a closer look today at Abram's faith, at what he believed, and take a look at what faith looks like. And I think the first thing we can say about what faith looks like is it trusts God at his word. Faith trusts God at his word. In verse 1, we see that God is speaking for the first time since Noah, since the time of Noah, to a man. And he speaks to Abram. And he gave Abram what Christians have recognized as four great promises. Four great promises. These four guarantees that were not only unseen in the future, but also seemingly impossible, right? I mean, look, look at the first one, verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. God is promising to make Abram into a great nation, that, that a nation of people will grow out of him. What instantly comes into Abram's mind? Just what we learn a, a few verses back, you can look at uh, chapter 11, verse 30. He knows, and now we know, that Sarai is barren. How is this going to be? I've lived with a barren wife. He's 75. We don't know when they got married, but for decades and decades and decades and decades, they've tried to get pregnant. And now God says, from you and Sarai, a nation will be born, will be birthed. And Abram trusts God at his word. 
Faith believes. Faith trusts even though it looks impossible. Now this faith is not without its struggles, right? It's not without its stumbles. It's not without its failings. I mean, that's, that's why we have the story of Abram. We see his, his stumblings, don't we? That's how faith is in our lives. I mean, that describes our faith, doesn't it? We stumble, we stagger, we fail. But here, Abram did not feign belief. He didn't say, well, I don't believe it, but I'm going to say that I believe it. He really believed. He actually trusted God at his word. How do we know that? Because scripture tells us that. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read that by faith, Abram, even though he was past age and Sarah was herself barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him, God, faithful, who had made the promise. He actually believed God in an impossibility, a tangible, decade after decade, impossibility. Secondly, the promise that we find in the second half of verse 2 says, I will make you into... I'll make your name great. I will make your name great. This is the second promise that God gives him. And this is especially powerful in the context that we have here in Genesis, isn't it? Just one chapter earlier, maybe some of you don't even have to turn back in your Bibles, you see that Tower of Babel was built by people who wanted to what? What was the purpose of the tower? To make their name great. I want my name to be great, and I'm going to make it so. And God says, no, 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 Abram, I will make your name great. Abraham was being asked by God to entrust him with his reputation. Trust me with your reputation. I will take care of it. I will make your name great. Don't protect yourself. Don't promote yourself. Don't defend yourself. I will make your name great. Trust me. So faith is trusting God with your reputation. And that's what we all have to learn if we're ever going to, ever going to step out and share our faith with anybody who doesn't believe, isn't it? We have to have trust in what God is saying here. If we're ever going to open our mouth... If we're ever in this next week, people, let me make it tangible for you. In this next week, if we're going to invite somebody who does not believe Jesus is the Christ to come watch a case for Christ, you're going to have to say, my reputation is in your hands, Lord. You, I give that to you. That's what we'll have to do if we're going to live differently in this world, isn't it? If you live according to scripture, you're going to live an odd-looking life to the world. You just will. And you have to say, I don't care. My reputation is in your hands. That's what we have to do when we confront a brother or sister in some sin within the church, isn't it? If we see a brother and sister sinning, we have to say, you know what? I, have, I love them. I care for them. I'm going to, in love 
say something to that person. I'm, you're in essence saying, Lord, my reputation is in your hands. That's part and parcel of the Christian faith. If you're worried about protecting or promoting or defending your reputation, you'll just not be an ineffective follower of Jesus Christ. It will lead you down the path of faithlessness. Thirdly, the promise we see in verse 1 is to go to a land I will show you, right? Leave everything and go to the land I will show you. In the military, there's something called traveling under sealed orders. Has anybody ever traveled under sealed orders in the military here? Okay, so I can say anything I want. (laughs) That means that you go to a point or fly to a place or take a boat somewhere. And once you're there, you open orders. They're sealed. And that tells you where to go next. So you don't know where you're going once you get to that one destination. And it can go on in place and place and place. That's essentially what God is telling Abram to do. Go under sealed orders. Abraham simply trusted God. Okay. When he arrives in Canaan, the Lord appears to him and tells you, this is the land. Stop. This is it. You're here. You've arrived. And Abram took God at his word. Scripture pushes in here even a little bit more and makes sure we see the impossibility of the promise. Did you see it? In verse 6, it says in the second half, he traveled there and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. This is not some barren land ready for cultivation for the first time. This land is possessed. This land is somebody else's. And God says, no, this is going to be your land. Our reading today tells us that, didn't it? In the public reading of Scripture. Abraham believed God. Okay. I look around and I see a lot of people, a lot of civilizations, a lot of walls, a lot of tough cities, a lot of people not worshiping God. Okay. Kent Hughes wrote, he had walked north to south through Canaan and lived it and worshiped in it. Symbolically, he had taken possession of it. I found that very interesting. Because why would the why would the scripture tell us where he went in the in Canaan and pitched his tent and building altars and worshiping there? Even though the Canaanites were still there, he traveled around living and worshiping and building altars. He took God at his word. And then finally we see the fourth promise in verse three, this granddaddy of them all, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here's the promise of worldwide blessing that will come out of Abram. Worldwide blessing. Here we have a quantum leap forward in redemptive history, don't we? In Genesis 3, the promise is broad and vague, right? The seed will come from a woman, and there's crushing going on on both sides. This this serpent crusher will come from the seed of a woman, yet here Yahweh reveals that this promise, this promised one, 
will come through Abram. And he trusted God at his word. He had faith. He said, okay, that is true. There's always a question here as to how much Abram knew, isn't it, about this promise? In Hebrews 11, we read that, speaking of Abram and Noah and Enoch and Abel, that all these people, it says, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, but only saw them from a distance. That describes the faith of all Old Testament saints, doesn't it? They only saw this promise from a distance. They welcomed them from a distance. They believed, but they didn't see. They trusted God at his word, but they didn't see the fruition of this promise. Did they know that God would become man, like we're celebrating this month? Did they know that God would take on flesh? No. Probably not. Or that he would be born of a virgin? Not yet. Or that he would live a perfectly righteous life under the law, as Galatians 4 says? That he would not sin, as Hebrews says? Probably not. Or that he would die a substitutionary death in the place of all those who had sinned? Probably not. Or that he would be raised from the dead on the third day? Did they know that? Not at this point. Abraham did not have that information. But what should cut us to the quick is that we have that information, don't we? We know that. We have all that detail. We know that to receive forgiveness for our sins, we need to have faith in someone else's perfect work. We cannot do it ourselves. We have that information. That faith and trust and belief in Jesus actually pays our penalty. The death warrant that is on our head is put on him. And because he was raised on the third day, that lets us know that we too will live. And that we worship a risen, living Savior. We have so much more detail than Abram did. Yet, we have something in common with him, don't we? We too have faith from a distance, don't we? We know all that stuff. We're told all that stuff in our scripture that we read. But what did Jesus say to his disciples? You believe because you have seen Blessed are those people who are coming after you who do not see, yet believe. Isn't that the essence of faith? You know, we can't touch Jesus. We're not like Thomas. We can't go and say, here, show me your your hands and your side. I mean, that's the definition that Hebrews even gives us, isn't it? Faith is... Sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That is the essence of faith. People of God, if you demand to see, there's no faith. Our faith, like Abraham, is from a distance, people. Like what Philip Eveson says, biblical faith is not a leap into the dark. It is trusting God and his word. That's what we have 
this tells us the gospel. We can't touch him. He won't appear to you, most likely. This is what we have. What else does faith look like? Well, it obeys God no matter what. It obeys God no matter what. Consider penicillin for a second. The famous antibiotic identified by Alexander Fleming. The drug is responsible for saving lives of countless individuals who'd otherwise have died from various forms of blood infection. Think of faith like this. I may accept that the bottle of penicillin exists. I may trust in its ability to cure blood poisoning, but nothing will change unless I receive the drug that is contained. I must allow it to destroy the bacteria which are slowly killing me. Otherwise, I have not benefited from the faith that I have of the liquid in that bottle. Acting on faith is vital. Acting on faith is vital. And that's what we see Abram doing here, isn't it? In verse 1, it says, Go to the land I will show you. And then if you skip down to verse 4, it says, So Abram left, as the Lord had told him. In a way, trusting and obeying are two sides of the same coin, if you will. Faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin. You, can, you really can't have one without the other. James, that's James's point in chapter 2 of his book, right? He says, you have faith without deeds. Let me show you my faith by what I do. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And then he says, you see that faith and actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. Here James is using Abraham in the example of Isaac, but we could just as easily say, take Abraham and his, and his leaving Ur, his leaving Haran. Faith necessitates action. Trust and obedience work together. You can never have true saving faith without the evidence of it, is another way of putting it. And that evidence are deeds, good works, obedience. John Calvin put it so succinctly and so elegantly this way. And if you're note takers, take this down because this is how it's perfectly defined. You're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. You are saved by faith alone, but saving faith, genuine faith, Holy Spirit regenerated faith is never alone. You cannot claim to be a Christian without the supernatural fruit of doing good. And here we see Abraham taking God at his word and leaving his country, his people, and his household. That's the action that goes by the faith. Abram said, yep, I believe your promises. God says, go, and he goes. John Calvin writes on this passage that God was essentially saying, I command you to go forth with your eyes closed, and I forbid you to inquire where I am leading you, until, having renounced your country, you have given yourself 
holy to me. Calvin puts his finger on a critical aspect of Abram's call, doesn't he? There has to be a distinct, decisive separation from the past. That's what God is doing here. Leave your people. Leave your nation. Leave your family. There needs to be a separation here. He's a break from the past. Salvation always, always is marked by a break from your past, people. There's always a break from your past. This is, this is our call of action. This is our call to obedience. We always have a go. Matthew 10, Jesus puts it this way. In pretty stark terms, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Christ is calling, he's saying, he's using very stark terms of family ties, the closest thing that people have in the Semitic uh, context. He's saying, it's that much of a break. You have to be holy. I have to be number one in your life. And there has to be this incredible break from your past. Remember when those men came up to Jesus and asked, you know, they were saying, I want to follow you, but first let me go bury my father. And what did he say? Let the dead bury their dead. Come and follow me. You must break from your past. That's what Jesus is saying there. Jesus again and again teaches there's nothing more important than him. There must be a decisive separation of who you were versus who you are. Now, this break from the past is different for everybody here. It's as different as, as how many people we have in this church today. It might mean a break from a life of addiction. It might mean a break from your life of greed and envy and pursuing what the world is offering. It might mean a break from your past of pursuing pleasure or a break from your past of pursuing comfort and ease in this life. Many missionaries were called from that. Whatever the break is from your past, there has to be an active break in your life. That's what we're learning from Abram's faith in action. God always calls us out of something to something. Thirdly, what does faith look like? It proclaims no matter who's watching. What does faith look like? What do we learn from Abram? Well, true faith proclaims no matter who's watching. Look at verses 6 through 9 in our text. We see there that traveling sequence in our narrative of Abraham traveling to the land and going to the tree of Morah and, and building an altar there, the Lord appearing there, and then he's traveling southward to Bethel and near Ai, and he builds an altar there, and then he travels down to, to the Negev. Abram is traveling throughout the land, and he's calling on the name of the Lord and building altars. What does that tell you he's doing? He's worshiping, right? 
unabashedly. Both calling on the name of the Lord and building altars describes worship. So he's traveling all around Canaan worshiping. But interestingly, look at where he's traveling to. First of all, he travels to the, the great tree or oak. Some of your texts might say Terebinth of Morah at Sechem. The word Morah there means teacher or oracle giver. We don't have any evidence of this, but perhaps this was a sacred Canaanite worshiping tree. You can just imagine the Canaanites coming to this tree, gathering around a soothsayer who here listens to the rustling of the leaves and then gives divination. And where does Abram build an altar? Where does Abram worship? Right next to where they're worshiping. And then consider verse 8 where he goes to Bethel. Pitches right in between Bethel and Ai. Bethel was an important Canaanite temple to the god El. And what does he do there? He calls on the name of the Lord. And he builds an altar. I don't know, maybe within eyesight of the temple, maybe not. But near there. Martin Luther translates verse 8 as... In Bethel, he built an altar and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Luther believes in context that Abram was proselytizing. That he was telling people about the one true God at a sacred Canaanite place. So here we have Abraham and his rather large contingent entering Canaan, traveling around, worshiping, proselytizing, building altars, and telling people about the one true God. What Abram didn't do is he didn't enter Canaan covertly. He didn't just come in and say, let's blend in. He didn't go into the land and say, you know what, this is promised to me, but let's bide our time. He didn't enter Canaan and worship Yahweh in secret. They were living their faith out in broad daylight. Dale Ralph Davies, the great commentator and pastor, says, Openly and unabashedly in Canaanite culture, Abraham seeks to testify to Yahweh. That's what true faith does, people. It proclaims no matter who's there, no matter who's watching. You know what faith looks like in your and my life? Pretty much the same as it does in Abram's. It's bold with the gospel. True faith doesn't care who is watching. So interesting to me, and to you too. I'm not making observations that you haven't made already. But so interesting to me that we are so bold with other things, yet not with the gospel. I'm going to pause here just so you can think of how you're bold. Maybe it's politically. You know, telling people about what you love and hate. Who cares who's watching? Who cares? Or about your favorite TV show that you just binge watched. Or about a hobby. How often do we bend our conversation so that I can mention this? Let me mention what I did 
Many will openly proclaim these loves, not caring who's watching, who's listening, not caring what people are thinking of them or saying about them, living out their lives out loud, yet when it comes to Christ, that's personal, it's private. You know what the scripture says about that? I'll say it colloquially. Nope. That's not it. All we read in Scripture tells us that we proclaim no matter who's watching. We see it here in Abram. It's not to say we don't struggle with being bold. We are going to spend months looking at the struggles of the patriarchs being bold. So it's beautiful about Scripture. It doesn't try and paint people as perfect. As a matter of fact, next week, next week we're going to look at Abram not being bold. Moses wasn't bold. I don't want to go to Pharaoh. Elijah wasn't bold, running away. Jonah struggled with boldness, as the disciples did when they ran away. And they spent three years with the living God. But the point is, is that true faith always ends up being bold. You proclaim no matter who's watching. That's the megaphone message of scripture, isn't it? Matthew 28, go into all the nations, teach, baptize, proclaim. That's Acts 4, isn't it, with Peter and John. You know, they're brought before the Sanhedrin and flogged and put into prison and they bring them before them after all this and they say, don't speak the name of Jesus anymore. We can't take it. And what do they say? I have to. Paul writes about this in his epistle to the Romans, doesn't he? I will not be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why aren't we to be ashamed, Paul? Because it's the power of God for salvation. So true saving faith proclaims no matter who's watching. It obeys. It takes God at his word. And lastly, true saving faith leaves a legacy. Leaves a legacy. This is closely tied to what I just spoke about in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, where we see Abram traveling around building altars to Yahweh. And we see here twice that he built altars. We see in the next chapter, he builds another altar. And we see in chapter 22, he builds that famous altar on Mount Moriah. Abraham basically was traveling around building these stone altars that were there long after he was gone. A physical legacy to his faith in the one true God. The only architecture that remained of Abram's life were these stone worship altars to God. Again, what does true faith look like? True faith leaves a mark. True faith leaves a lasting mark. It makes a difference after you're gone. 
It's something that we here at Southwest Harbor Congregational have to keep in mind in all that we do, people. We're not here just for us. We're here for those who will come after us and to leave a mark of faith. Our corporate faith in Christ, if it's genuine, will leave a legacy in the town of Southwest Harbor. Over the years, over the decades, this church's faith should make a difference here. It's critical to remember. I mean, what popped into my mind, and always does when I'm thinking of the legacy leaving here, is, is the youth program. Why do we do this? It's hard. It's messy. It's frustrating. It's disappointing. It's discouraging. Why do we do this? So that there will be a legacy here. So that by Christ's power, through the preaching of the gospel, week in and week out, these kids will be changed. That they will make a difference in the decades when we're not either moved away or dead and gone. In a way, it's like Abram. He never saw the difference that he made in Canaan. He didn't live to see that. He was still living in tents, as it says in Hebrews. Perhaps most near and dear to our hearts is the legacy we leave in our family, isn't it? What's the legacy of faith that you're going to leave in your family? If you don't know Oz Guinness, you should. He's the great-great-grandson of Arthur Guinness, the Dublin brewer, Guinness beer. Perhaps some of you have even tasted that beer. But that's another sermon. But that's not the legacy that Oz Guinness thinks about. In his book, Impossible People, Oz recounts a much different legacy. He writes, I grew up in China the son of medical missionaries in the 1940s. We lived in Nanjing, which was then the nation's capital. But there were a few good schools to go to, so at the age of five, I found myself setting off by plane to a boarding school alone in Shanghai. It was my first time in my life I had been away from my parents on my own. So to give me a constant reminder of the North Star of the faith at the center of our family life, my father had searched for two small, smooth, flat stones and painted them his life motto in that of my mother. For many years, those two little stones were tangible memos in my pocket of my gray flannel shorts that were the uniform of most English schoolboys in those days. In my right pocket was my father's motto, found faithful. In my left pocket was my mother's motto, please him. For many years have passed since then, he writes, and both those little painted stones are lost to the chaos of escaping from China when Mao Zedong and the People's Army eventually overran Nanjing. But I've never forgotten the lesson of those little stones. Followers of Jesus are called to be found faithful 
and to please him, always, everywhere, and in spite of everyone and everything. What legacy do you want to leave behind? I've been to my share of funerals. I've heard a lot of legacies. Some bad. Some good. Some even great legacies. But you know what is the best legacy? A father who gave their son stones of faithfulness. A mother who left altars of God all over the lives of her children. Generations that grow up and call the Lord blessed. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, use it. Change us. Shape us. Transform us by it. In Jesus' name, amen.